Enter the dragon. As we fling down some karate kicks with some tantalizing lyrics. Send this one to all lyric lovers. With the unknown, Sharky P, Melody, DT. Rolling on the plastic. Hi there, I'm Marcus Barnes, and this is the RA Exchange. It's the 17th of November 2020, and I'm sat here with DJS. DJS is an accomplished member of the London scene. He's been active for a number of years and he's been through several different genres, uh, working up to today to run House of Silk, which is uh, arguably one of the city's biggest and best house promotions. He's got an extensive history and we're going to touch on some of the aspects of his story today in today's podcast. DJS, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Um, I wanted to talk about dungeons to begin with. Um, Obviously, uh, a very iconic and influential uh, place in in the London scene. Yeah, um, you were a regular there. Yeah, and yeah. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how you found out about Dungeons and kind of what it was like? Yeah, it was uh, well at the time I was listening to a pirate radio station called Sunrise FM. There was two main stations. Well, there was quite a few, but Sunrise and Centre Force were the stations. You was either Sunrise or Centre Force. I was Sunrise. They used to put on some parties down there, and the people that ran the security and ran the nights, uh, they were local in the area, uh, Kenny and Noah Chari. Um, so it was only a five-minute walk, and I just I used to be in there every other weekend. Uh, to be fair, <laughs> an amazing place. Uh, well, it was a grub. It was it was a horrible place to be fair. <laughs> sweaty. It was just, but it was an amazing rave. Yeah, man. Every week, it was just. Uh, it's pivotal to the to the music scene in this country and, and the rave scene how it started. Mm. Uh, Dungeons is, is a is a key player. And what, I'm not sure if it gets the credit it does. To be fair, what kind of music? Um, you know, in, like generally speaking, was it Acid House at the time? Yeah, it was yeah. Acid House at the time, which was it was just, it was just amazing because it, it it just broke in '88. All this music was coming through, and it was something new vibrant fresh and compared to the music we used to have the pop music mm -hmm. etc this was unbelievable i mean you had to, the pirate radio stations were around but used to have like a a lot of the reggae stations yeah. the soul stations before that and then and then you got the this acid house stuff and uh it was just it was exciting it was uh, exciting yeah I, I take it you already into music then oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Oh. i was into music yeah i was always locked onto the radio stations um I was, um, I mean, I was sneaking, going into, uh, in the 80s, um, used to have a lot of house parties on the weekends. It was, you you don't get that now, but in those days, it was rife. Called blues and yeah, all this. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I used to, as a 14-year-old, me and my mates, we used to go to these parties, <laughs> and house parties. And um, it's actually crazy how society's changed big time from then it was a totally different society and uh, yeah, and used to have like um some of them used to be called public enemy raves okay uh, yeah because public enemy was just the name of the raves they were called like uh, in house party blues house parties and and i used to go i remember um 
I, I went to a few parties and and, and the tunes and I remember I remember, remember a tune that stood out. It was like Gwen McRae, um, "Love That I'm Giving," yeah, very classic. Yeah, you. and <laughs> we'd go in there and you'd, you'd hear these tunes and we used to think we were big and just, <laughs> we were loving it. And then the acid house started creeping in. Mm. So were there a lot of teenagers going to those blues uh, yeah. and those house well, parties as we, well? Well, I was a 14-year-old, but past for probably 16, 17. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, you would. Not many men. You'd get a lot of... Yeah, you would. You would. You'd get a lot, you'd get all sorts, to be fair. All sorts. Um, I mean, the, the house parties, the blues... They're more adult orientated, mm. but um, obviously we, we wanted a part. We wanted a part of it, and just, yeah, it was, it was talking about it now. It's crazy actually how it's changed to society considerably from then. Did you? Did it feel more sort of liberated then to you, society then? Um, well, it's, it's well compared to now, a totally different society. Yes, definitely more liberated. Um, so you had no mobile phones. You had, you know, it was just it was. I think it was more friendly as I say. Yeah. 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 It was. It was probably a, a f- compared to now. You know. Do you think that's because people were more trusting of each other? There was sort of maybe less sort of. I um, think there was more morals and values in those days than you have today. Now in today, morals values out the window. I, I find generally in society, there was a lot more morals, a lot more values. I think they had a bit more principle. Mm. Uh, about yourself in those days, uh, I think that's the main difference till now. I mean, when you compare the kids of those days and the kids of today's, I think it comes down to principles, morals, values, right. totally different. And so that would you say that that could have potentially played into um, the fact that people were having house parties and, and trusted that people would come and, and maybe be a bit more well-behaved? Uh, well, you would get a few difficulties yeah. here and there. Uh, at some parties, um, well, I mean, difficulties. You'd get the, the local uh, type of thug where to come in and uh, address himself for 10, 15 minutes and, and then leave, probably. That's what would happen. Um, but they were quite the norm, these parties. You know, it, it, there was loads of them that would go on. It wasn't just like, oh, there's one. You'd have many parties. It was... I'm trying to think now. Imagine if you're having a house party where you're paying to get in and paying yeah. for drinks. It wouldn't last two minutes. No, not at all. It wouldn't man. last two not minutes at all. at all. And it's it's a world that I actually come from because my my mum used to go to blues. Okay. My dad was in the sound system. Right. And I, I think that's pretty much how they met. Yeah. And right. um, I can't imagine it because I didn't I didn't grow up in in that kind of world either. Yeah. And it's like it's I think it might be hard for a lot of people listening to to imagine too, man. Can can you sort of tap into your memory banks and kind of describe like the atmosphere and you know like just the the general sort of way that people looked and behaved? In those days, you had a lot of designers. I remember, Gabici was a big uh, Gabici was a big big make. Um, your faras, you had your faras on. Um, Behaviour was, you know, it was a party vibe. I found that, obviously there was drugs, people used to smoke cannabis and mm. drinking, but there was a, a lot more positive energy in, mm. in these events. One, people couldn't wait for the weekend. Yeah. And uh, people couldn't wait for Friday night. Friday night was as big as a Saturday night back in those days. That ain't the case now. Mm. But Friday night was huge. So Friday was your Saturday now. 
very positive uh, energy. I mean, when I was going into the parties, 14, we weren't indulging in much at all. We were still young, so we wasn't really doing anything, you know, just maybe trying to get a, get a drink, and but not much. But we, we, we were just soaking in the atmosphere. And, yeah, yeah. you know, when I look back at it now, I was probably uh, training to what I became. It was This was Completely. my training period, just uh, an educational period, maybe, for me, yeah. And so how did that then... Um translate over into dungeons and then sort of pushing you forward to to want to get involved in music itself well, as well um so like i said the, the radio stations came along mm. huge at the time in those days you could call a radio sunrise and i can't even remember the, the phone number <laughs> what, like, what was it it was oh oh eight six oh two seven eight double seven one that that was the that was the number you'd call in for a shout or or something so started going to uh dungeons then uh, I realised uh, my next door neighbour, he was uh, uh, head of security at Shaftesbury Avenue in, uh, it was called Shaftesbury's. Mm. And Is that Byrumba now? Next door to Byrumba, Rainforest. Right. right, Rainforest Cafe, yeah. Right, but Rainforest was a far bigger venue, not what it is now. Mm. It's, he was a huge venue, you'd walk downstairs and and Kiss used to do a night in there, every Saturday, Kiss of M, called Third Base, and you'd have... Uh, Paul Trouble Anderson, Judge Jules, uh, Colin Dell, uh, Colin Favor, uh, these type of DJs were there every week. And uh, so was, uh, he, my neighbor used to get me in and five of my friends. It was from there that I started, uh, got to know Paul Trouble Anderson. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Yeah, of, of course, man. Biggest, RIP. Yeah. And uh, I started carrying his box every week. Because um, that was that was that was the thing. If you if Carrie's box walk into a into a venue, you'd feel big carrying yeah, his box. Yeah, and yeah. Um, I used to watch him DJ, and I used to think, wow. Um, and also Bernie, who used to, who was head doorman there, he was was part of uh, an event. Actually, not far from here, Tyson Street, Dawson. Yes, I yeah. used to live. On, I used to live on Tyson Street right, a few okay. years ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> Tyson Street is, is, is it was a warehouse there, like a yeah. big three-story warehouse, and there'd be a, a, a event called Rush back in ninety-one, right, nineteen ninety-one, right. ninety ninety-one. Yeah. So uh, I used to get. Um, the flying arranged for this event. Right, okay. Uh, so all my mates I used to get in for free yep. on Saturday at Shaftesbury's. Their job was to come out at five o'clock in the morning and fly out till six, and uh, they never used to be happy about it, but they, if they wanted to get in free, they were off their nuts of my, <laughs> on ecstasy. You know, they're, they're flying, dancing, just <laughs> kept moving. And uh, so these were really the introductory periods, and, um, you know, Carrying Paul's box and going to different events with him was a real eye opener for me. What What was it that drove you to 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 want to become involved? Because a lot of people go out and they they party and they enjoy the, the party and they go home and go go back to work or whatever. You know, like for you, it seemed like there was something that drove you. The to... music was just. Um, I was so into the music; mm. it was unbelievable. I was probably over involved, just constantly listening to the music. Just wanted to be a wannabe DJ. Sure. Uh, was buying some records. Uh, I was buying records, in fact, because uh, I used to work as well uh, at Petticoat Lane on a Sunday morning sometimes. And there used to be a record shop um, in Petticoat Lane. They went on actually to uh, open up Uptown Records in Soho. Oh, really? Yeah. Right. Easy, the guy's name. I used to buy records on a Sunday when I was 15. Okay. 
14, 15, 16. What kind of stuff were you buying? Can you remember? Uh, yeah, I was buying like uh, Doug Lazy, Get It, Let It Roll, um, French Kiss, yep. Salsa House, Richie Rich. Mm. Um, I remember like uh, all sorts really, a De La Swing, all, all types, all types. I was buying every Sunday. Did you? Did you? Uh, Eight oh eight state Pacific state. Oh yeah, yeah, classic. Yeah. Did you have decks or did you have no, a turntable? No, I didn't have no decks. I had a turntable at home. Right. Just a hi-fi system turntable. I didn't have decks. Um, so I mean, sometimes we should just be at home mimicking while making out <laughs> as a DJ. You know, just just that's how it went for quite a long time. To be fair, um, but I but my I used to watch Paul Anderson. Mm. That I used to watch him. And, um, he was a master, yeah. and there's there's a lot of people that I've interviewed, pioneers, Fabio Groove Rider, Colin Dale. Yeah. A lot of them looked up to him. He was like yeah. a real like. Yeah, he pioneer. was probably he was probably one of the biggest DJs at that moment because he yeah Paul Anderson. How did you actually get close enough to him to like approach him and then end up well, carrying? Well, what records? happened was uh, <laughs> so the group of boys I was with, one of my other friends, Akil, he was he was part of the group. He was a slightly bit older than me. He got to know Paul and ended up being his driver. Ah, okay. So became his. So Paul used to have a a show on Kiss FM every Saturday, nine to eleven. It was two hours uh, advanced dance mix show. Ak used to drive him there, and from there, then just go to his gigs straight after from Holloway Road, the um, the, um, Where the, studio the studios was, were yeah, based yeah, then. Yeah. So uh, and I used to go sometimes to watch him, you know. And again, radio's so changed since then as well. Yeah, and man. it was two hours, no adverts. It was the only wow. show on radio that had no adverts. Wow. And Kiss was new and big then yeah, as man. well. Yeah, yeah. Only dance music uh, legal station. Had a great lineup as well. And um, yeah, we used to, everyone used to be locked in on a Saturday night between 9 and 11, getting you in the mood to go, to go and do what you do. But he was the biggest at that time. And there was something about him um, I, I felt he stood out from the rest of the DJs. When I used to watch him, mm. he was different to the rest. Mm. Energy, the way he mixed, selection. He was, uh, it was a cut for me. He was a cut above the rest. So, how was it for you to end up carrying his records for him? Oh, it was quite like, an honor. I, I couldn't see <laughs> the buzz to walk in into into a venue with him the buzz I couldn't I used to feel like <laughs> wow this I has to pick up my chest and it was amazing I can't I can't explain the feeling it was it was unbelievable I used to love it oh you know oh, you yeah I'm in trouble because Paul Trouble and I was like, yeah I'm in trouble <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah amazing amazing to to actually see all that yeah this is something that i think um perhaps a lot of people today might not be that aware of is that there was this this culture of like earning your stripes by assisting a dj by like carrying his records yeah. and, that, and that was a way in for a lot of people i actually heard that um carl cox used to carry paul oakenfold's records as well so like you know the, it it, it yeah, was a kind of yeah, like a rite of yeah, passage for yeah, a few Cole people. Yeah, Cox was a sound guy at the time as exactly, well. Exactly, yeah, um, yeah. And, and also the flyering thing, like lots, lots of people, lots of big DJs now started out flyering. Andy C was a, a went out flyering yeah, quite yeah, a lot. Yeah, I remember Andy, yeah. And so, um, and, and this is something that, again, it's not as present these days. No, because it's non-existent. Yeah, yeah. It's non-existent. In those days, um, if you wanted to, some involvement somehow, that was your way in. So for all DJs, if you speak to a lot of the older DJs, they will tell you they carried boxes. It's like speaking to footballers that used to clean boots yep. of, of, of the older footballers. Yep. 
that no longer exists. And, and it's the same with, with carrying with no boxes now. Uh, but even when there was for a little while, it, it had faded out. But that was your way to get to get get the know-how of the system of Clubland or, or, or raving. I spent seven years just just um, educating myself like that. I think it was a, a huge education period for me. Mm. Yeah, and at the time I couldn't afford decks, uh, Technics. And I remember Paul was, uh, Anderson said to me all the time, "Where's your tape? You, you, you know, you want to be a DJ? Where's your mixtape?" And I said, oh, "Look at him." got a few records and that, but I couldn't mix to save my life yeah, yeah you know yeah. so yeah so you spent about a year and a half with Paul is that right I spent yeah I spent uh about 18 months yeah. yeah what what do you think are some of the key things that you learned from him besides his his technique and his energy you know in, in terms of like um did he impart any knowledge to you or did you just sort of learn things from just observing how he was and how he behaved he just said uh, I, I always say I want to be a DJ and he used to say to me, um, just watch me. So he used to say to me, watch me. And that's the way I used to do. I used to watch because his style of mixing, I, I wasn't seeing many other DJs. Maybe Carl Cox was was a good mixer at the time. Oh, yeah? yeah, yeah, Carl Cox, he would uh, slam it, crossfader. But the style of mixing and was something I was so into, so I would just watch him. And then what I would do was... When I'm in the car and you used to have the round knobs, I used to, <laughs> with, with the volume, yeah. and, and, and try and hit the bass or the treble or the hi-hats. And, uh, and, and I was the king of that. <laughs> so every time I was in a car and, and, and we savage, and I, and I used to be playing around with it and I used to do what Trouble did, you know. He used to, mm. Do and, the, uh, the chopping and stuff, yeah. And I used to watch him. <laughs> and that was growing in me, that style, you know. It was it was growing in me over the years, slowly, slowly growing. That's how I, that's what I used to do, just watch him. Brilliant, man. Yeah, brilliant. And that it provides like the, the perfect foundation for you to go on and do what what you've done over the last couple of decades, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I got involved in '97, eight years later. I mean, I I, I, I went through some tricky periods as a kid, um, as you do well. Not, not not really as you do, but unfortunately I did. It can happen, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the um, I, I was watching Acid House turn into hardcore. Uh, hardcore, you had... Um, it was also a, a, a US garage type of... Uh, well, garage, housey garage, like mm. Bucketheads and MK. Yep. These sort of tracks at the time. Um so I was still doing my, but then I was really getting to the big raves. Uh, I went to Sun, I went to biology and these type of raves as well in '89. Foundation, man. Yeah, I went to yeah. I, went, I went to those raves, uh, Genesis. How uh, was that? Because you were still like mid-teens, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What an experience. Going, oh yeah, it was just, just <laughs> it was, it was, it was an amazing experience because we was taking ecstasy at the time. Right. Can you remember your first pill? Yeah, we had a white dove. <laughs> Wow, nice. Uh, the White Dove. Um, I was a bit scared at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Ain't going to lie. I was a bit scared, but it, it, everyone was on it. I remember I went to a few raves, didn't do it. Mm. Was watching mm. everyone. I was thinking his mouths were going. What's <laughs> going on with these people? <laughs> but if I take it, will I be okay? So I remember I took a court to start off with. Yeah. Okay. I, was too, I was too scared. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but 
the white the white doves they were quite head rushy mm -hmm. so I'm, I like the more the yellow callies were very um floaty and make you feel good and kept you awake he was in control of that sure so um yeah that 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 part of it when you're in when you're in the events it was just i can't even explain it but when i went to when it turned to hardcore mm -hmm. hardcore events i still say till today probably the most exciting used to have the hair stand up on the back the euphoria and the energy when mm. in the events was was unbelievable why do you think that was was it like that the, the slightly harder was, beats the yeah break beats slightly harder beats there was a lot of pianos uplifting mm. it was just it was the way the music was designed yeah 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 it was the way it was designed it was unbelievable and then you had new acts coming through well there was like the rat packs yeah, and yeah. these type of people that were coming into the hardcore slip mat and yep. um it was it was a, it was amazing that music and what it did for you you couldn't wait I, I remember i was working um as a laborer in the city me and my mate building site and uh, my, we were getting really uh, pushed at work carrying cement up 10 flights of stairs wow. and we were dying and i remember we were so tired on a saturday but the minute you took a pill, you feel <laughs> all that tiredness just go knackered all week. Don't know how I was going to do this, and, and the pill just sorted you out. Yep, evaporates. Yeah, evaporates. So yeah, so we, went, we started getting to those hardcore raves, and then obviously got involved. Uh, uh, that hardcore turned to jungle. Mm -hmm. Wasn't really in. I didn't go to jungle raves, but at the time got involved in bad things um, mm. with drugs, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and uh, had to go through a period where. I had to go through that part of my yeah. stage in life. Yeah, yeah. Just got deeper into uh, different drugs, selling drugs. Not, not necessarily ecstasy or anything like that. I was into a bit of a darker scene. Mm. Um, and I uh, was in and out of prison for a little while. And mm. then um, I was uh, I ended up in prison on, on remand for a long time, looking at a long time as well. So uh, I think it was at that period I decided that this, is, this was wrong. And I probably needed something like that. Wake uh, up call. Yeah, wake up call. To think you're sitting in jail that you could be looking at seven, eight, nine years maybe, and that, that and that and that for me was quite frightening. Yeah. So, um, so I actually used um, my jail prison time remand as a, as a, as a way to to try and now regroup and um, fix up really, try and fix up. Good I mean, you, man. I, I have to look at it this way. I'm either going to be here for eight years or seven years, or whatever they said it was going to be, but um, or someone's looking over me and will let me out, and I left it in in the hands of the unseen, if you like, and uh, and thankfully I won the case, and uh, when I came out, it was never no looking back. Uh, I left everything positive, and I had the chance to be part of um, garage UK garage was emerging. Mm -hmm had the chance to be involved in something in UK Garage at the time and uh, took the opportunity. And from then on, I've been involved in the club scene, yeah. Well, good for you for making that change, man, because, you know, for, for some for some people, situations like that are the making of them, and for others, it sends them on an even darker yeah, path. Yeah, I so. think when you're in prison, I think you've got to look at the, the basics of it and the logistics of it. It's, um, you're an outright loser. You look at the clientele that's in there, you probably look at them and think, you know, well, they were meant to be here. And and I, I always felt I was never meant to be, uh, the way I was brought up and the way I wasn't meant, I'm not meant to be here. 
that was the mindset I had. And when you look at you're, you're locked up with men, your access to food is it's non-existent. Mm-hmm. The little luxuries you're after in life, there's no women. Mm-hmm. What sort of life is this? Mm-hmm. You're earning six pound a week or five pound a week in there. And I said, this is this is not where I come from. This is not what I'm about. This is not me, you know, at the end of the day. And you'd watch some of the th- problems that would go on in these places mm-hmm. and I think, wow, you know. And uh, it was a wake-up call for me. And I'd been in a couple of times before, but only for like a, a month wasn't enough to give me a wake-up call. Maybe another time I went for a week. But the, that time when I went, when I was on remand for a long time, that was for me just opened my eyes and it was just... An, it, it's not the place to be. You're locked up at five o'clock. What's, yeah, what sort of life is that at the end of the day? It's a waste. Yeah. It's a waste, yeah. So I felt like a loser. So I needed that feeling. Yeah. Yeah, I needed that feeling to, to know what time it was. Yeah, and, and to not have that feeling again. Yeah. So I, I heard you um, in another interview say that um, the Todd Edwards uh, mix CD... Was, right. Uh, yeah. was oh, quite right. Yeah. The, well. the, so I was in Chelmsford at the time. This is where I was on remand for a long time. And my girlfriend at the time, she sent me uh, Todd was locked on. It was called. And um, I'm listening to this. I'm thinking, yeah, this is this is this is great stuff. This is amazing. This is this is what I'm really into. More the garage house type of thing. And uh, the C- this C- this CD was. It, I got the whole prison because they could hear me at night and I would have my music on loud so they could hear this coming through my cell window. You'd either have people telling you, shut the, turn that fucking thing down. or And uh, I did get that on the other occasion, but people were loving what I was playing. Probably call me a DJ if you like. <laughs> people could hear, people were loving what I was playing. So I was, I was lending people... Um, I had it on tape to be fair, uh, letting people the tape. I remember one day the the gym the gym screws no no- they knocked on my door, yeah. and they said, "Yeah, you, you, that that music you're playing, let us borrow it." <laughs> uh, he, he borrowed it, he taped it, and then, and it was just it was Todd Ed was locked on. It was groundbreaking, and it was a massive seed uh, compilation. Yeah, man. Uh, Massive for garage, the, the roots of garage in this country, UK garage, big time, big time, massive CD. Yeah, because yeah. to- Todd was and still is so revered. Yeah, and it, and I, I read an interview of him where he said he wasn't even really that aware that his music was resonating no, so much. He wasn't because no. he was getting hammered on pirate, hammered in the clubs, and then he got a booking to come over here, and he was just like, everyone was going nuts for him, and he just couldn't believe yeah. it. Um, what a what a, and a, f- a fantastic producer, man! Like his stuff is just amazing. Yeah. So you um so you, so you came out of jail and this this opportunity presented itself to you. Yeah. Um. So how how did that actually come your way? So what happened was uh, my girlfriend's sister. She used to go to uni with uh, a guy that was involved in R and B events, uni university ones, and they got we were they were offered a venue called the Raw Club in Tottenham Court Road. It was an underground club. You'd walk down, there's an underground car park, in fact, Tottenham Court Road. Whereabouts on Tottenham Court Road? Um, so if you know Oxford Street, yep. Um, the first right on the corner, it was an underground car park. I forgot the name of the actual road. It was on the corner of Tottenham Court Road, and just Oxford Street, just on the corner. Right. You could see it. Raw Club. 
they took the opportunity to um, get involved with UK Garage and just and it's quite funny really. So there was a few of them involved, and then they got me involved uh, about two months later. I, I got involved. My my girlfriend was doing the guest list, and um, it was all from there. It just it, the club had three months life left. It was going to shut in April, and it was it was we were packing it out every single week. And it was the emergence of the UK Garage, the Carl Tough Enough Brown Matt Jam Lamont. Yep. Uh, this type of era was emerging and becoming very very popular. Mm-hmm. Um, and we was at the beginning of all that to make that popular. And uh, f- for me, it was a new lease of life now. I've just been out of prison uh, not long, not, not long, and now I'm involved in this. I would never have thought this was... I thought it was going to take me time to maybe regroup. Because um, I didn't have much at all when I came out of prison. Yeah, Not much at all. Hardly anything, in fact. So I was just energised. Um, and what was your involvement? Well, I was a promoter. Right, okay. The thing was, I went to become a DJ. So I'd gone all these years of what I've just explained, of, you know, <laughs> wanted to become a DJ, never did happen. Funny enough, a quick story, in 1992, um, there was a club called Jacqueline's on Wardour Street. I don't know what it's called now, but it was called Jacqueline's. Very popular night spot. Commercial, mm-hmm. not a rave. But Carl, Carl Brown used to, Carl Duffner Brown was a de- resident DJ there. Not garage, obviously. He was commercial. He was a sick DJ. Cole, amazing what he would do as well. Two two of my mates, they were they had a DJ outfit called First Base, and I I wanted to be part of them, so I used to go with them on the uni circuit a little bit. Couldn't mix or save my life or nothing, honestly. And I used to just chop just do all this and. and Jacqueline said, all right, uh, we'll call you in for a little, uh, if you want to play uh, on a Saturday or Wednesday night, um, come in and let me see how you guys mix. So we went in. So my two mates, there were three of us, they said, fine, no problem. But I get on clanging shambles. <laughs> Absolute <laughs> shambles I was. He looked at me and they said, no, you, you ain't got the gig you got. <laughs> I lost them like you couldn't get a gig all, all because of me. Uh, <laughs> and then the guy who said to me, uh, "Nah," and he said to me, "You'll never make it. You got, you got no. I won't even bother DJing." He said to me, "Taz wow. Johnson, his name was Taz was Johnson. Name? Taz Johnson. Right. He was the resident DJ at uh, Jacklin's. Funny enough, Taz Johnson got to hear about me eight years later." <laughs> He came with, uh, so I, I was doing a Pure Silk event in um, Equinox in Leicester Square. Wow, okay. In those days, West End clubs would take yeah. on these events. And um, I was playing, it was about two in the morning, and Carl was on after me. Taz Johnson was with him, and he, Taz couldn't believe what, I, what I'd become and what I was doing. I looked at him, I was laughing, I said, I said oh, you remember you. Remember <laughs> he, remember, he looked at me, he remembered me, and... Uh, I said, remember what you told me? <laughs> I said, remember what you told me? And yeah, it was a funny moment for me then. But um, yeah, no, if you'd seen me, uh, if you'd seen what I did that day, you would have said the same thing to me. No chance. You got no chance of becoming a DJ. So so was then um, becoming part of the, the team with Pure Silk, that gave you your in into DJing? Yeah, 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 yeah. So that was my route now because it was very difficult before but that became the route now for me to become a DJ, you know. So 
six months into it, I started warming up at the event. So we moved to from Raw to SW1 Club every Saturday. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, which is, became Cube, I think, Victoria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big club, man. So we was doing that every Saturday, ramming it out. Um, packed weekly event that went on for two years. And I think three months or four months into SW1, I started warming up. Brilliant. So, so you were sort of energised from sort of landing on your feet out of jail yeah. into this new thing. Yeah. It's going well. Next step is warming up, DJing and everything, yeah. feeling good. Sounds like you sort of got yourself into quite a good situation there, man. Yeah, yeah. It was amazing. <laughs> it was, uh, when I look back at it now, it was absolutely, storyline is great because um, it doesn't really happen for many people. But it was destined for me when I look back at it. It was just destined to happen. If something was meant to happen, it was a huge part of my destiny. Mm. So, um, yeah, buying records, getting given records as well. Um, got to know a lot of the people, a lot, lot, lot of industry people would come to the events, record labels, mm. getting get, get promos. So this was a great chance for me to now start uh, properly learning DJing. So I got hold of a pair of sound labs oh, yeah. uh, decks in those days, yeah. And... Um, Every night at home, learning, learning, learning. Every single night, put put the time in and warming up every Saturday. Uh, and that's how I started to really uh, come through as a DJ. Well, was it come through as a DJ? Well, not really come through as a DJ. Well, I was a DJ at my own events. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is perfect in a way. Which I still wasn't the main DJ, but I was warming up. Yeah. I, I wouldn't throw myself, no, I wasn't. So I remember a couple of times DJ never turned up. I would never go on at 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock. I wasn't ready for it. Mm. Um, till a couple of years later, so that was the, that, that's how I got involved. And UK Garage was groundbreaking. Yeah, because I, I was going to ask. Um, so Pure Silk came up. Was it around ninety seven, ninety eight? Ninety seven, January ninety seven. Yeah. So it it kind of hit the sort of the garage. Garage was sort of on its way up at that point, anyway. Yeah. And so you guys kind of hit the ground running with the event because it, it was... You know what? It was instant success. Yeah. That, instant success. It wasn't, it wasn't a case of, oh, we're trying to build something here. Mm. It was instant success. What, why do you think it's sort of... Because we caught something at the right time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You had Sun City that was doing Adrenaline Village uh, and Twice As Nice were doing a little Sunday thing in the Arches... And La Cosa Nostra, if I remember, they had done one or two. It was still relatively new, fresh, and we caught it at the right time. We caught the wave. And and the same thing went on to happen in House Silk. I caught it at the right moment. Right, right. And that's the key yeah. to, this, to this game. Yeah, man. Not coming in when something's really popular. Uh, in, you, I mean, you can, you know, but... I found my success was catching the wave at the right time. It's about to grow mm -hmm. into and that's that's how it worked for us. Instant success. It wasn't six hundred, four hundred, no, packed every week. Roadblocks. Amazing. Roadblocks. And a lot of your ticket sales were through Rickle Shops, right? In those days, yeah. yeah. So I mean went on to do with Pure Silk between ninety seven and say two thousand. Very fearless, took big risks. So we had we had the every Saturday thing going on. We just we thought we were untouchable. We had it we had it all on lock, and we took on New Year's Eve ninety seven ninety eight in Stonebridge Leisure Centre, um, Bridge Park Leisure Centre. 
Which is an interesting part of the city yeah, to do uh, events. Yeah, and uh, we actually ended up getting six, six and a half thousand people. Brilliant. And I heard you say that was one of, you say that's one of your favourite. Was one of the yeah. greatest events we ever did. Now, when we were doing the event, so I remember I was, we went to book Matt Jam Lamont and he's saying, well, oh, Stonebridge, are you not mad? <laughs> exactly. So we had to meet him there, show him what we're going to do with a sound system coming from, I think at the time, Germany. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a big show he was going to put on and then people were saying to us, well, this is Stonebridge. You don't know what you you guys have got yourself in for here. This is right next to Stonebridge Estate. Mm -hmm. This is this is could end up being mayhem. So we said, "Oh, it's too late now." We, <laughs> you know, uh, and it's fearless. If you asked me to do that, I would never do anything like that. <laughs> Through my connections in Clubland, which I told you about Bernie earlier on and Egan, and um, so I got thirty handpicked the toughest security you could get right um to come to, to come with us on the night and 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 that's what we did and um it's funny really because it was the greatest event pure silk i still look back on it now and i think it's got to be the best event we did wow we've done many events i can't tell you many 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 events to to, to see that achievement i said to myself 13 40 i was in jail I, I, if you had told me 13 months ago if Todd Ed was locked on in my cell blasting this is what you'd be involved in I would have said to you no chance no fucking way it's not happening right? so it was just surreal it was all going on I couldn't believe it and uh, it really 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 was happening and just from that moment achieving that me and my partners, we just felt we were untouchable. We felt untouchable after that. I felt I like, yeah, we was, uh, we went to do, we, we had big balls. We went to go and do this, that, and the next year we was in, we was in Wembley, yeah, which was the Stanley Road. And what, how many people came to that one? Thirteen thousand. The biggest UK garage event ever. That's crazy. They call these things festivals now. Yeah, ten thousand, twelve festivals. No, we did Wembley Conference Center. That is crazy. We sold out ten thousand in <sighs> advance. Sold gone. I remember on the, on the last day, tickets being sold for 150 quid. <laughs> How much were they supposed to be? 50, 60 pounds, but they were going for 150. <laughs> we were offered, we were selling at 150, 200. <laughs> uh, we, uh, the door was ridiculous. Uh, it turned into a bit of a hazard that night. Mm. Overloaded. Uh, it was quite funny because here we are putting an event at Wembley, but we're going up against all our competitors. So you had Twice as Nice was doing something. You had Expo... Uh, all the big boys doing something, and then just down the road where we did last year, I was Stonebridge, well, you had Liberty and One Night Stand doing something, and it's like we didn't care. But, um, you know, we were borrowing, to, to make this event happen, we had to get people involved, borrowing money left, right, and centre, give us that, we'll pay you back double. Sure. You know what I'm trying to say? We were just doing stupid things, really. Yeah, they yeah. should have. Um, but it paid off. I remember I had Steve Jackson at 12 o'clock. Brilliant. Uh, he was on Kiss FM at the yeah, time. Massive, legend. massive he yeah, was. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, EZ, one o'clock. Still remember it, Spoonie, two o'clock. Remember, Spoonie was late, <laughs> five minutes. But the, the the type of gentleman Spoonie was, he would he came to look for me first to apologise. He's Look, I'm really sorry I was late. I said, don't worry, just, 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 just go up and uh, He's a top guy, go on. Yeah, um, uh, Amazing. So from that moment, that, that event there, Wembley, 98, 99, it opened a lot of doors for us. Uh, yeah. Um, but I had been in Iron Upper a few months before that. 
Right. I don't know if you know about the Iron Apple thing or me. Yeah. Uh, Boiler Room did yeah, documentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Basically, pioneered garage there. Yeah, yeah. I, I was the first guy to take it out there. Yeah. So I'd been in Iron Apple a few months before that. Mm. So the combination of me being in Iron Apple, did what I did in Iron Apple in '98, and that event, I couldn't tell you the feeling. It was, uh, I was a loser two years ago. Yeah. An outright loser. Because that's what I was. You, you, you can't say anything else. You, you've got to be real. And then to be what I was involved in now, you couldn't have you couldn't have written a script. <laughs> it was uh, what a feeling, gobsmacked. What a feeling when I look back at what I was involved in, and the three or four three year period I was involved in drugs, heavy hard drugs, drug houses, drug raids. Wow, man. I was thinking, uh, how did I ever like? Yeah. How was that? But, you know, maybe you have to go through these things in life to end yeah. up. I, I, I do believe, and I've, I, and I've experienced this through interviewing a lot of artists and a lot of um, people who are successful and watching a lot of documentaries, that a lot of people go have a moment in their life where something switches and they have, they've been going on a really, really bad path and something goes bang. Either they have an accident, they end up in jail, whatever it is, and it makes them reconsider what they're doing. Yes. And it and it, and it, not only does it make them reconsider what they're doing, it makes them go, like you said, this is not me. That's what I should be doing. And once you t tap into that and, and acknowledge it, you follow that path. And you and, and not only do you follow it, you follow it with like determination and self belief because yeah. you've finally gone. That's this is who I am, yeah. and th this is who I'm gonna be, and this is what my like you the word you use destiny. This is my destiny. So you yeah. work towards it. Yeah. And that's clearly what's happened with you. Yeah, it was just. It was amazing, you know, I was finally becoming someone. Yeah. And then you became, as you said in one of your other interviews, uh, you ended up being uh, like a king in Ayanapa because you yeah. became this guy who... Again, yeah, I went to, uh, got married. I was uh, so my girlfriend who was with me for years. My mum was saying, look, you've got to get married now. I'm having this. <laughs> so, yeah, I went to go to Ayanapa. Uh, just heard about it. I don't know why I went to go there, to be fair. I went to go to Iron Upper. I took my record box with me. So was Iron Upper already kind of a thing at that time? Not a garage thing. And not a, not, not a place where DJs were going to mm. um, name DJs. No, it wasn't really, no. Was it kind of like an 18s to 30s type of situation? Or, uh, or not even probably a bit more advanced than that. Right, okay. Probably a little bit more advanced than that. Um, so you'd be here with the housey, commercial housey tracks, okay. you know, in these okay. places. So it's a bit more advanced than that. So a, a bit of a party destination, but not established in the way that it That's became. right, yeah. yeah. Okay. Basically, it was just what you're saying there. Party destination, but not established. But uh, Londoners, Essex out there, you know, you had that 95, 90, you know, you'd hear Faithless and Morel's Groove and these yeah, type of tracks, right, okay. George Morel. Um um, Armin van Helden, mm -hmm. you'd hear these tracks out there. Um, but I took, I took my box with me, my record box. Um, still wasn't the greatest DJ at that moment, still learning my trade. Um, good selector, good selector, but still not technically the greatest DJ. Mm. Still trying to learn. Uh, you could mix at home, but then doing it in a club time on a big system was, you know, was quite daunting sometimes. Mm. But, um, I met someone I knew out there called Sammy Confunction. He said, look, and there was a little club going on for about 300 people. And he said, uh, oh, I heard you got your box. I said, yeah, pure silks out here, blah, blah. Look, come and play tonight. So I was there every night, just loving it. Just, uh, it was, <laughs> on it, your honeymoon? 
I'm animal. <laughs> Club was getting packed because people say, oh, the pure silk man's here, you know? <laughs> That's what I was more known as as well, yeah, the yeah. DJS. I was pretty the pure silk guys here. Um, so, uh, yeah, this, this, this club was being packed. Uh, so I was, uh, um, what happened was I was approached by a venue. Uh, there was a club called Pizzazz. Massive, biggest club on the island, dead every night. Right. Packed, dead. 30 people, 40 people, big 2,000 venue. Um, so um, the manager called me in for a meeting. He said to me, um, it's unbelievable what, what you're doing here, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, because I want you to come and play here. So I said, yeah, why not? And really, I shouldn't have, I should have been carried on playing at, at the small club. Because, so I want you to play uh, So I started playing there. Um, didn't really do much in terms of bringing anyone or the numbers. Um, but the the family that ran the island uh, in terms of big businesses there, mm. they, they, they called me up and um, I said, look, uh, they went in a meeting with me. I said, look, next year we could promote this from London and bring people out here. Um, I think we, we, we would do well. Um, he said, yeah, I agree with you. Um, I said, so it was, um, we'll start the promotion on our flyers, telling you how we'll do it, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, we'll take on, we're quite confident we could. He said to us, he said, right, that's a good idea. But he goes, the idea I want to put to you is that I want you to start this Friday. <laughs> I said, uh, and my partner had come out. I said, no, that can't happen. How far into the season was this? Well, this was August now. End of July, I think, was it? Yes. Yes, end of July, early first week of August. I said, this is, he goes, no, I want you to start this Friday. And this is at the beginning of the week, like a Monday or yeah, something? Yeah, this was, this was uh, Monday. <laughs> right. I said, pardon? <laughs> I looked at my partner. I said, Phew. he said, this Friday we start. So obviously he he's quite desperate. His club's empty, big club. I looked at my partner and I said, can we do this Friday, do you reckon? And he was adamant, Linos Molas, this Friday. So I said to him, um, I said, all right, well, let's make a few phone calls. So um, he said, don't worry, I'll fix you with the flying people, the, the design, you go see the designer. And it wasn't like you could just email your logo or anything. <laughs> yeah. you know, it was just it was a totally different setup. So I um, got on the phone. I said, right, I spoke to my partner, I said, who should we get? I said, let's I'll phone Spoonie. Phone Spoonie, I said, Spoonie, I said, I'm in Napa, rah, rah. Look, I'm doing the pure salt this Friday, what are you saying? He said, cool, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I remember he had a book in as well, and he, he cancelled a book. Well, he, he he was part of the dream team at the time, yeah, so yeah. he gave it to Timmy or Mikey, one of his partners. Um, <laughs> the benefits of being in the trio, eh? Phone Creed, <laughs> MC Creed. Um, I said, Creed, look, we've got a party this Friday, do you want to come over? So we got a total club, they got their flights booked, hotels booked. I was sitting in a, I remember I was sitting in some village doing a flyer and just thinking, <laughs> wow, I mean, uh, you know, normally I'm in London going to designers and yeah, now I'm in some remote village. I was in a village looking out, no man's land there. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe my, what, I'm, what I'm doing. So got the flyer ready, Spoonie, Creed and me. Um, started promoting from the Wednesday night because that's how you do it out there. The event was on Friday. Um, Create generated a huge buzz out there. 
And uh, I remember the first event on a Friday, we put about, I think, 900,000, 1, people at the time. Brilliant. It was, it was unbelievable. Brilliant. They couldn't believe what we had done, the club. The island couldn't believe what we had done. Uh, and I remember there was a club called Emporium. And during the two-week period I was there on my honeymoon, my honeymoon, what I did was, I didn't touch on that, once it had finished, I brought my wife back to London and they'd flown me back out. Ah, okay. The club, they'd flown me back out. Right. So that's how it all started there. Mm. So I went back out. And um, I had approached a club called Emporium. I, I personally had approached them whilst I was playing at Spot Club. I said, look, this is what we do, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's every every week, it's our flyers. He's looking, oh, good, good, yeah. And what he did was, he was a bit, his ego, he was a bit full of himself. He had a busy night. He thought he was a chap. And he had booked Carl Tough Enough Brown once, so he thought he knew about Garage. And he told me to come and play. And it was me and MC Kai, because Kai was a resident host MC for a week. He came out for a week and they made him host MC, a garage name. Uh, and I played three tracks. The crowd were going mad. And he said, no, you're no good, come off. Whoa, okay. Yeah, he said to me, no. But I, the first three tracks went mad. And so when I did that, they were all over me. I said, oh, fuck you. <laughs> fuck you, I said to the guy. Fuck you. And I just, we was in Iron Apple for the next six weeks, uh, achieving, say, 900 a week, and then dwindled down to about 500 end of season. And... Uh, and that's how it started, Iron Apple for us, where we came back the next year wow. and it was just full house every week. And so, so that first full season, what year was that? First full season was 99. Right, okay. The part season right. was 98. Yep, yep. And uh, and then 99, it was just blue. We were the kings out there. The biggest night had the media behind, well, uh, Radio Ones, Mix, all the magazines. Brilliant. Supporting us, MTV. Everyone was behind us. Iron Apple was the place. Um, just It just became an amazing island for a few years after that. So after that first partial season, you came back and you were basically still doing Pure Silk in London. Oh, every Saturday. Plus we went on to do the Wembley. So yeah. the combination of Iron Apple and Wembley put us on the map. Right. Where record deals are coming through now. Yeah. Um, okay. You know, mixed compilation deals and yeah, yeah. Uh, really put us on the map. What people looked at with Wembley was an event of this music has pulled 13,500 people. The yeah, music yeah. is big, and mm -hmm. then we thought it was. Yeah. That's what opened a lot of people's eyes in the industry and uh, record companies. This music is, a, we need to tap into this because. If you've got any kind of business now, so if you see that happening. How like, can you, this yeah. amount of people, and I remember that night it was. It was Pure Silk, Cream at Docklands, and I can't remember the other. We were the biggest events in the country that night. Wow. Cream, it was up against, well, Cream was, you know what Cream were about, you know what I mean? So um, that, that put us on the map. That's huge. Mm. And so this, um, I, I think we need to cover the Pure Silk compilations because they were, well, they still are iconic. Yeah, so got the record deals, uh, became a joint venture agreement, in fact, uh, where we was based in Marleybone. And I was the guy putting... What I liked about what I was doing and uh, was it was me putting the track listing together, me, everything. And when I put... We 
put the first compilation out, which was 99. I remember Steve Jackson called me up from Kiss. He said to me, yes, because I've just listened to the album. I've got Norris the Boss Windross to mix it at the time. He said, I've just listened to this compilation. He said, I'd never thought I would ever hear a compilation where I'm going to hear this music, but not even the commercial, commercial, if you like, type of track, but the underground big tune. He mm. said, I'd never thought I'd hear a compilation like this. And he was bigging me up. And our first album, we did about 30,000 copies. The record company looked at this and said, there's room for growth here. Mm-hmm. It was the next album that put us on the map. Uh, went gold, silver, gold. Carl Tough Enough Brown mixed it. Again, I do the track listing, mm-hmm. which, I, again, I was loving. Yeah, I bet. Because I, it's, it's me got the control now because mm. I'm speaking to people in record companies and they're telling me, no, we've got to put these tracks that are on the companies yeah. and we have, we, yeah, you know, yeah. we're limited as to... Mm-hmm. I say, no, I do what I want. I choose from top to bottom what's going on so that album blew us um to the extent where now i'm sitting in um award ceremonies dance star i had it was puff daddy fat boy slim on one the dance star awards 2000 right yeah i remember those <laughs> uh and we were nominated for best club night or best compilation two two nominees and i just couldn't believe how far i'd come the success become really great in in the record company um, but I think as a success came, it started going. We were started to be a bit dictated to as to what we could do and what we couldn't do because we had brought the success. We were we were becoming victims of our own success a little bit. As can happen. No, we want you to make it more commercial now. And can you? No, we, we were being manufactured a little bit rather yeah, than yeah. you know letting our creativity speak for itself and. Um, so we had a good run with the albums. I mean, I went on. I went. I started mixing them. Pure Silk and Iron Upper. I started. I was the first guy to put an MC on a compilation. They said it would never work. <laughs> uh, compilations, you can't have MC on it. Um, I said, well, we're we're different. We're garage. We're we're not like the rest. And uh, the MC thing worked. Obviously, we knew how to add it in. That's it. Nicely. MCs are integral to garage, man. Yeah. So and, and so the album got me a lot of recognition as a DJ, mm. DJS, like it was TV advertised. So now I'm sitting there thinking, a few years ago, you're in prison a loser. You've done all what you've just done with the raves. You've been to Iron Apple, you've done Wembley's. You've put... You're now a TV advertised product. <laughs> yeah. So our albums are being advertised in between, say, Champions League matches and, and this type of peak time. Channel 4... I'm going into uh, HMV. I'm going into uh, Tesco. See, I couldn't believe what I'm seeing. For me, for me, as what I'd been through, it, I, was, uh, I had to just knock myself a little bit. And, <laughs> and I'd go into shopping centres and I'm hearing the albums. <laughs> no way. <laughs> so I'm, for me now, I was just like, wow. I mean, I was in prison looking at eight years and... I won the case, and this is, this is an amazing story. I was, I was saying to myself, what an amazing story. Like, How many editions of uh, Pure Silk went out in the end? So we had uh, seven mixed compilations. And uh, in, in total, all of them put together, how many do you reckon they... How many? Oh, we must have done at least uh, half a million. Wow. What happened with that story, with the compilations, is as we became really big, the major record companies wanted us, but we're now in competition with them. 
Yes, okay. Right, because so, they were doing their own Right, so they were doing, yeah, Pure Garage. They started, they, yep. they, they saw us, Pure Silk, or we do Pure Garage. Yeah. Now, the record, the record companies are looking at us. And so we've had all sorts of deals come in, and we wanted to sign, but the partnership we had, who the uh, which was a, a Jewish uh, guy, who's been in the pop world for years, millionaire out of it, mm-hmm. Looked at he had uh, imagination and Mungo Jerry in the summertime and Banana Rama and these type of acts he had had he'd made his money for these type of people. Was that was that management or was that? that no, that was actually they they were a record company, but they had oh. formed Pure Silk Records with us. Right. Okay. Okay. They cool. formed it with us. They funded it. They right. formed it. The record companies wanted us. The Warner's Universal's Ministries. They wanted mm. us. Mm. Uh, I remember Ministry were courting me and I ended up taking me out. Warner wanted us, and what they did was, and uh, we're telling Ellis. He said, "No, I've been in this game. They know I'm involved. They know what time it is." And we obviously this is the whole learning process for us. We don't know about the. You know, we're still learning as we're going along. So now the record companies. Major record companies had got involved in garage music and were signing tracks, Flowers, Artful Dodger, Craig David. So we could no longer get these tracks for our comic compilation. They said no, because we're now, um, we was the only independent company that had the market share, had a piece of the market share, and we're rivaling them now. And they they, either you join them or they're going to push you out. They're going to push you out. Yeah. And slowly they pushed us out. And we were telling, we should sign with Warner, we should sign. No, no, they know about me. I've been, yeah, uh, and uh, really it was, the, and we were signing singles as well. I was signing uh, artists, Richie Dan. I had Soul Solid track on, my, uh, uh, on our releases. We were signing singles. And, but uh, when the majors want you, they can, and you don't, uh, we found where they were getting involved with Garage, they kicked us out in, in that respect. So. so with retrospects, would you have done things differently? Would you have potentially... To, to be fair, music? looking back on it, you would, but at the time, yeah. we didn't have the knowledge. Yeah, man. Didn't have the knowledge, you know. So what happened then? Because, you know, obviously Garage became in- increasingly commercialised. Obviously, there was a lot of... Um, sensationalized headlines about Ayanapa. There was like lots of talk about violence. The music got a, a bit darker and a bit and a bit more dominated by MCs. Whereas uh, in the early days, MCs complimented the music. It seemed to get sort of a bit... Well, it, it evolves, becomes so popular. People want to be part of it, using our platform for what they heavily MC-led music. And then you had the Soul Solids and the Heartlesses come through and crowds change along the way and violence came because there was uh, a lot of problems in London at the time and we were the popular events and um, things would end up happen, not at my particular event, but what's happening in in the scene at the time. Gun crime. Yeah. Iron Upper, heavy publicised crime that was going, you saw Dizzy Rath, I was actually there when he got started watching it. Mm. Um, all sorts of stuff was going on in Ayanapa. I saw so much things going on that it went from such a high to bang, just collapsing. The thing is, when the police in the end said, We're going to stop all garage events in London, and, and, and I remember that. that's yeah. what happened. 
the thing is that there's 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 no accounting for the 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 people that come into your parties like you, you especially when you get really really popular the same happens with with jungle you know it started getting really popular yeah. and, it, and and you i mean obviously you, you have a door policy but you can't stop everyone from coming in. Oh. So people start coming in. And even like outside the clubs, even if you don't let people in, there they can still be trouble outside your club, which you can't really control. So yeah. you know, in the end... Um, you know, the problem so with Garage is it when we first started, there was ecstasy involved. That quickly phased out. Uh, do you know, do you, why, why do you think that was? Uh, that because the jungle, as the jungle scene was closing down because mm. of this problem, mm. they came to us. Yep. And they brought the crack spliffs and the champagne and this type of thing to, to our scene. Mm. So mm. The, the drugs dictate yeah. genres, I find. Yeah. And that's what happened. We never had that happy vibe. Well, it was a happy vibe, but we never had that ecstasy vibe no more. Mm. We now got the crack cocaine spliffs, which were very popular. Right. Coke, you know, and champagne, alcohol driven. Wow. Did you see that change happen quite swiftly or was it quite a gradual? No, quite quickly I saw yeah. a change. In fact, yeah, quite quickly that change came. As soon as the jungle scene was getting locked off, they were coming to us. And what what year would you say that was roughly? Say about 97, nice, yeah. Uh, the jungle scene had big problems in 95, 96, mm. huge problems. Mm. Um, so when came over to us, like come over 97, 98. No. But... The underground garage part of it, that 98, 99, that London, 97, was still the best part in London. Mm. The trouble came um, with the, when you had the Soul Solids and this, this type of thing coming through. That's when the crowds were changing and mm. people that were following them, they were coming into our events and this is how it started. The, the trouble wasn't really there. You did have trouble. Mm. Uh, in 97, 98, it, was, it wasn't like, you know, you had a few, it wasn't everybody and anybody, it was just when it had to be trouble outside us, mm -hmm. you had trouble. It was still the best part of Garage was those years, the, the underground part of it. When it got commercialised, it became a full-blown business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which which is always yeah, the sort of downfall but of the, the But the underground part of it was great. But when, when, when the MC led, it was just changing and changing, and in the end the police said, nah. You got Tottenham and Hackney fighting. You got this happening, that yeah. happening, and yeah. So, so the one something that I've I've not really heard or read much about is is the fact that there was ecstasy involved in in garage in the early days. Yeah, because um, everyone when they talk about it or when it gets written about, it's like the champagne this, the this, and the the designer this, and blah blah blah, and like all of these kind of like. Uh, superficial elements that are kind of attached to garage, whereas like you the know, ecstasy came in. The, no, the ecstasy was dead start with. That slowly faded out quite quickly, say in about eight, nine, ten, twelve months. Right. Where some of the people started going over to house. Okay. With the ecstasy. Yep. As the jungle lot were probably coming into us. Right. Okay. So that transition was taking place. Yeah, yeah. So I would say actually some of the more more we had a lot more white uh, the whiter people were going over taking the pills and went over to mm. the house part of it more like uh, I don't know Judge Jules in those days smoking sure. you know this type of house was going David Morales you know mm -hmm. they went over there that side of it but yeah I saw that transition and uh, it became I mean you're wearing shoes to a garage rave <laughs> I mean. 
it was Moschino and shoes. How can you rave in shoes? <laughs> yeah, I know. But he did. Patrick yeah. Cox's. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he did. Patrick Cox's were the one. Yeah. <laughs> so how about... Um, so there was this there was this demonization of garage and so solid are always like the ones that are kind of like almost yeah. like the poster boys for this downfall and like you yeah. know, no disrespect for them but that's what the me the media did they yeah. latched onto so yeah. solid especially and obviously so they had their number one and that obviously like created a lot but then everything started to really dwindle and the garage scene you know the, the police said that they, these parties weren't allowed anymore and it sort of kind of shut things down a bit yeah how did that affect you because yeah, obviously you were everyone. at the center of it. it affected everyone it affected everyone who was at the center of it, it affected us all mm. um yeah as a dj i could still go and get bookings out of london I had the commercial success from 2001 the albums but it affected us all in a big way mm. um decline big time wasn't the same no more uh, when you shut one stream down, the record companies don't want to know no yep. more. The ripple effect of that is mm. just damaging. So come 2004, 2005, uh, in the end, they shut us down with an uh, with event at Heaven, Pure Silk and Apple Reunion, 2004. Um, yeah, cancelled us last minute, so like, oh, can't wow. go on, I'm going to be trouble here tonight. And, blah, blah. and then from there... Just really, you know, um, looking back and think, wow, what a great thing we had. Yeah. <laughs> Not a bad run. Shame that. I said, look at it, I think, well, look at these house people. They're, they're, they're not having these problems. They're still going along. You know, you've got the Americans that come over. Why are we suffering like this? You know, it was a bit for us. You had Oakenfold popping, mm. big, mad major. Yeah, it wasn't good and to dwindle like this for the next six or seven years. I was just wow. You know, so yeah. How did you get by? Were you still oh, mostly no, I, f concentrating on music? I or? had property that I'd bought during oh. Pure Silk. Yeah, so I bought a few properties and uh, I had kids, so it was a good time to bring up my kids a little bit as well. Um, but I was wondering, you know, uh, and was going to play here and there. Mm -hmm. Nothing, nothing exciting. Yeah, busy clubs, commercial clubs, yeah. playing garage. You're yeah. restricted to how much you can play. Mm. The music become a shambles for me. You had dubstep. Um, the sound of the music, I thought, which was which was big, which I thought that's what was big. You had trance. I thought this sound that's out now is wow. Is this what has what has London or what has the UK become? These sounds, what we used to have and. And remember, you had so many DJs that were in, at that time. When house became trance, a lot of DJs left, like Jeremy Healy, Brandon Blue. You see a lot of DJs go. This new sound and the dubstep, I thought, oh. But then um, uh, there was a new sound. Well, you had Jamie Jones came with a track called Hungry for the Power. And mm. I was invo uh, I'd got involved with one of my friends. Well, it wasn't my event, but I was helping my mate Destination House in Coliseum. 2012, 2011, 2012. Yep. And I could see, uh, and one thing I noticed in the seven years in London that the music, see, uh, the clubs were div divided colour. You either yeah. it was a black event or it was a white event. There wasn't yeah, yeah, that. Yeah. And I Asian thought, wow, yeah, yeah. It's, the segregation is, is, is amazing. Uh, what this has become, it's either a black, you're into that, R&B, or, yep, or you're into... This is the white events, which would have a few black people. 
Definitely uh, wasn't like that at Dungeons, eh? Yeah. <laughs> I thought, I couldn't believe what, what this had become. Yeah. But I was involved in an event, which was pretty quite black-orientated house event in uh, Coliseum. And Jamie Jones had come over Hungry for the Power. And some of the music that was coming out at the time reminded me of Garage Buzz. And I haven't had this buzz for a long time. What was that event called at Coliseum? Destination House. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah right. Yeah, yeah. And um, I'm listening to the music and I thought, wow, some of the best music I'm hearing in a long time. And mm. I was collecting all this stuff, Perupa, Nonstop, Jamie Jones, Hungry Full of Power, uh, Martinez Brothers, H to the Izzo. Yeah, man. Um, I thought, seems to be a bit exciting again. Um, so what I decided to do was... Um, my friend had opened a bar in Old Kent Road called Thomas the Beckett. Yeah. He yeah, was into yeah, property. Yeah. He had bought the building and he, he took it to the bar. So he said, he phoned me up. He goes, look, come down. I want you to have a look at this place. And uh, I, I drove down there one night. I drove outside, looked at it. I drove off. I said, I've never done clubs, anything like this, 300 people. It's not my type of thing. I'm more of a club man. But then I was driving back home. I said, why did I drive there? I said, no, let me go back. Let me at least speak to the guy. So I drove back. This is, we've got, we got a license till six. I'm looking. It was quite good inside. It was only about 250 people you could put in there. But it was, it was quite a good little energy that I could see up there. Mm. He said, what do you reckon? Do you want to do something here? Uh, he goes, look, please, I know you know the garage DJs. Bring them down. So I started little garage things there. Going all right. We sort Pied Piper, Mike Roughcut Lloyd, Creed, PSG. And I was just doing little monthly things there. And uh, just doing that for about 12 months. Uh, started, called it, uh, what I was calling it, uh, indulgence. <laughs> nothing major. This is just little bars. And uh, I thought, you know, I said, I had this name in my head called House of Silk. And I said, you know, I've got this name. I want to bring it out. Should I do it in here or not? Try it, test the waters. I decided to test the water February 2013. Uh, yeah, packed it out, 300 people. Um, Did you play yourself? Yeah, I've, for me now, I'm the main guy. Yep. And then I thought, okay, I think... Um, there's a chance of me maybe being able to grow this because you had Radford doing Sundays at Can't Stop, Won't Stop. Yeah. I saw that scene. This is what we're doing. And that was all that was really going on, the Sunday scene. Did a couple of other little things, but Radford on Can't Stop, Won't Stop was the thing on Aquarium on Sunday. So I thought, let me do one more. And it was my birthday, 2013, May. Um, and that that was a tw that went on until 10 in the morning at the club. <laughs> yeah, I remember I opened the door at 6 in the morning because they had 24-hour license. People are coming in and paying. Brilliant. So I thought, and uh, the lineups I had though were like Pioneer, Carlos Series, Super D. Wasn't really the type of thing, uh, the direction I wanted to go down. So I had an opportunity to go into Hidden in September that year. I took it, booked Mark Radford, Adam Cotier, Lance Morgan, Riaz Danani, rammed it out, 1,100 people. And then I said to myself, this is pure silk for me all over again. I could feel it. I could feel the music. Looking at the music that's coming out, very garagey house. Very, I haven't heard this. All I heard dubstep and this mad sounds. This crazy. This sounds trance and satanic music. That's how I came to us. For me, I used to hate trance. 
<laughs> so you think, what is this? This is the devil's music. And uh, so, uh, so this was, I could see this new DJ Radford, uh, this type, this is the new crop of, mm. that we should go for. Mm. Uh, and then I got them all on board, they were, was on board, and then I done the first birthday in Hidden, 12-hour party. 1,400 people, closing party of Hidden, was going to shut down, 10 till 10, still the greatest house Silk I've ever done. Wow. Amazing, that party. Um, and it grew exponentially from there, didn't it? Grew from 250, 300, 1100, 1400. Club closed down, went to Scala because the people that owned Hidden was running Scala. Uh, I t- uh, took two steps back because we were going to North London. It was still quite a South London thing out there. Yeah, thing. big time. Very South London. Even though you had Aquarium, very South London orientated. Yeah, yeah. Took a few steps back, dropped to about 800 people in Scala. Uh, done a few parties. Halloween party, got 1,000 people. Opportunity came to go into Coronet. In Elephant Castle. Yeah, 2015, January. I said, I'll take the opportunity. But people were saying, you'll never fill Coronet with these lineups. No chance. They said, you'll never fill uh, your suicide. You're committing suicide going into the Coronet. with. Uh, you're going to need... Uh, uh, eats everything, or uh, you need to try and get Maya Jane Coles, or you need to try and get uh, Richie Ahmed, uh, no artificial colours. Mm-hmm. And I said, uh, I, tried, I actually tried to get no artificial colours, but it was a lot of snobbery being shown to us. Oh, snobbery, really? Yeah, a lot of snobbery. Was that um, for booking agents? That yeah, we couldn't yeah. get these people. Just, 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 they, they, were, they were turning our noses up at us for some reason. Uh, do you do you know? Did you think about why that was? At yeah, the time? I knew what it was. They were they were calling us Hood, right? Hood, Hood House. Hood yeah, House, yeah, yeah. Jamie Jones's track is break is broken our dance floors. The hungry for the power wasn't breaking on, on your dance floors with Jamie. Jo- it was breaking on. It broke on our dance floors. We broke M Clay Blue Jeans, Lana Del Rey. We broke Cosy D Aphrodite. We broke these tracks, not you lot. Mm. We broke your tracks for you. And uh, so they were showing us snobbery. So that was fine. I didn't care about that myself. Um, it affected a lot of the other DJs who had to look at themselves and were having complexions. Shall we do this? Shall we not? Um, yeah. Okay. I carried on. I, I was on the one. No, this is the way forward. Uh, went into the coronet and totally rammed it out. 2,483 people Back in, in South January. London. South London. These lineups. And they told me, yes, you're committing suicide. I was in Birmingham flying for the event in November 2004. I walked out the event. Uh, I was flying half silk flyer. Guy walked up to me. He goes, "You reckon you can fill coronet with that lineup?" I looked at him and I was, I was, you know, I was driving home from Birmingham that morning. I was thinking, you know what? You know. <laughs> <laughs> there was an event in uh, Coronet on December the 14th called Siesta. Yep, and about 1,200 people. So I thought, you know, I thought maybe I'll probably get this 1,200 or 1,300. Fuck it, we'll do it. Do you know what I mean? No, no choice, I'm committed to it now. Yeah, I changed the game with that event. What? I, ch- I changed the fucking game. What date in January was that? It was the 23rd of January, I changed the game. Wow. Yeah, I changed the, uh, you know, I literally changed the game. And it's quite funny because you're talking about Mark Radford. You know, these type of DJs turn their back on their, on their scene. I don't know if he told you that in his interview, but I'll tell you that for him. He turned his back on our scene. Oh, yeah? Yeah. yeah. He turned his back, him, Carnell Beats, um, 
good few of them. They thought they were bigger than the scene. They wasn't. And mm. They turned their back. I'm gonna get on with Mark and that. They're fine. But I'm just, just telling you how it is. Yeah, yeah. They turned their back on our scene. When did that happen? Actually, happened in 2014. Right. Mark said he had re- res- uh, he's got saved for ministry, but they thought you couldn't be seen at our parties because they won't get work. It was all it's all in their heads. Like what f- shit they'd been fed by this. Uh, the house people from say around here really all this Shoreditch area mm. they've been fed shit into their heads so they turned their back and I was and I was with my experience from Pure Silk knowing how genres operate coming from dungeons seeing I knew the underground and I was watching brands who were part of us our scene who had done our lineups but got rid of them and started booking whatever you want to call them the house DJs but there's no connection between them so I think the Basson and this yeah, side of people right. just no connection right um, funny names there were as well some of these people Wildcats and yep. if, yeah all these yep, type yep. Of, just all, con- they're all kind of a bit more of a, what I'm described as a bit more new, new disco than um, yeah than, no connection yeah yeah but they, but they were, I guess, like big names at the time. And if you don't have confidence in the, the lineups that you're booking, perhaps they're the kind of names but that you'd go for at the, that time. The, I'm going to these events, I'm watching that the entertainment value is zero. The connection, they're not that they're shit. No, they're not. They're just that they're not for our. Yeah. The flavour of what we're doing. Mm. Yes, some of the music they're playing is what we play. But the way we're cooking this up is not like this different. We're cooking it up different. Yeah. And I watched. There's no connection. This is not raves. This is not where I I come from, London. I'm, this is not raving. This is not. You don't put someone up there just to, oh because he's this and, and and the crowd is looking at him. There's no vibe. That's not what entertainment is about. Mm-hmm. And that's why I won in House of Silk. That's why I won because I stuck to my guns as to what I'm doing. Uh, I saw a lot of DJs end up turning their back who crumbled mm. by doing that. And I went on to prosper and literally became the biggest thing in this game. Well, this this is it's really interesting to me because it's clear that you House of Silk became like the the big thing in yeah. London, right? And as Rosh covered in his in his open letter, yeah. weren't getting the press at no. all. Now, first of all, I, I can I can imagine that you weren't really phased by that because if you weren't phased by booking agents being snobby, then yeah, lack of, you know lack of is. press coverage is yeah. also something that perhaps you weren't that bothered about. But what it led to was what what you were talking about with Mark Radford and other people. Yeah, is yeah. that is people sort of maybe losing faith in it and going going elsewhere? Do you know what and, it was? Is uh, I don't I, I'm not one to say this. There was a racial mm-hmm. sugar coated element mm-hmm. towards us. Yeah, I was never that bothered to be fair because I understood the game. Mm-hmm. What bothered me was that the DJs who are saying, no, we're going. We want to be booked by Elro. Elro are never going to fucking going to book you. What the fuck? You you come from here. Mm -hmm. Let's grow our thing. Mm. Let's do what Spoonie and Carl Tuffy Enough Brown said in 96. Fuck Louis Vega and David Morales coming here taking 20 grand. We've got our own UK garage. Fuck the US garage. Build our own scene. They never had this mentality. And I tell Spoonie these stories, and we were on the same page. We, Matt Jammer, we had a UK scene. We grew it. They've had the same thing now, mm. yet they, oh, they live in fear of what other people think. Yeah. Hold on a minute. This is, uh, I could see the, there was a racial element, 
but they would sugarcoat it and deliver it differently. Sure. Uh, and uh, but I was never one to draw a race car. I didn't give mm. a shit about. It. I didn't give a fuck for one second. Um, but what I've done in House of Silk, I haven't got the recognition for it. Mm. They know about me. Mm. They know about me. They all know about it. Because when you get those numbers, what I'm doing in Great Suffolk Street Warehouse for five years, four times a year in that warehouse, yep. that the big boys couldn't even do in there. Yep. I saw We Are Festival do it every week and that for 10 weeks. And after three weeks, I had to close it down, couldn't get the numbers. What I did in there, I broke records in Great Suffolk Street Warehouse, Coronet, consistently broke the records. Was booking one or two DJs, uh, no artificial colours, Rafa Raphael, Mark Jenkins, mm -hmm. Martin Eichen, Um, just one, that's it. Just to top it off, bit of music became a bit more techier, so we offered you a variety of everything. But they connected with my crowd, it wasn't that you couldn't yeah. connect with my crowd. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, uh, you saw the abodes that would get stages in festivals, yet we're pulling more numbers than them. Yeah, yeah. And no one's looking at us Does at it, all. Do you, do you feel disappointed by that? A little bit. A um, little bit. Not much, but a little bit. Mm. I, uh, I believe that in some of the festivals, we should be, if I was white, I, w um, I would have been in a festival. <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be jumping at me. It's a numbers game. Yeah. Isn't it? Isn't it, <laughs> um, isn't it really shitty though that um, you can be neglected and also have this 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 snobbery aimed at you and th and this really crappy tag hood house because your crowd is from London working class and mixed and diverse like this is this, but like dungeons was like that garage was like that jungle was like that and all of those things have been written hardcore about was like that yeah exactly like, <laughs> all of these movements now all of a sudden. In the early 2010s, there's another movement happening, which is, you know, that fo following on yeah. from like this pattern of, of scenes that have grown out of London that gets neglected. Why? Because there's a dominance of like snobbery and like these like these snobby attitudes from like particular members of the press, but also the industry itself. Agents. Yeah. It come from the top. Don't get it twisted. It came from Jamie Jones. Don't ever get that fucking twisted. He was one of the main guys. It comes from the top. And I'm thinking, Jamie Jones... Hungry for the power that made you, by the way. Your track broke on our floors with our people. They weren't, it wasn't breaking nowhere else. Now, I like what Jamie Jones has done over the years. I think he's, you know, and what he stands for. And, yeah, I respect him. And But it came, it came from people like him downwards. From people like him, Jamie Jones, you know. I mean, you're a black mixer or whatever you are as well, you, Jamie. What the fuck's wrong with you? You know, this is for me, it's not about colour. It's about what we're doing. It's just, London's such a diverse mm. uh, city. Mm. It's it's not about that. It's not about hood and mm. nobody wants hood in their raves. I've hardly had any problems in my raves ever. Mm. You know what I mean? I've had more problems in white raves house than mine, trust me. Mm. Uh, publicised acid attacks and mm. stabbings and I had a lot of arguments with agents a lot of this is where my battles were with agents DJ agents this is where my battles came I didn't I won't I won't I didn't want to tolerate their shit um, what was the general kind of um, response that you were getting oh, from unavailable them? everyone's unavailable not even like any question unavailable shut down there and then shut down but look at the numbers I'm getting that shut me down. 
I'm getting blanked by agents and I've had your Mark Radford, Carneo Beats and these Night Shifts and uh, Riaz, all these other DJs, Adam Cotier, don't want to be, oh, can't be seen at House of Silk. Well, no one else is going to book you. I told them all, no one, and no one else is booking them. Don't think Paradise is going to book you. Don't think Jamie Jones is going to book you because you, 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 you've lost the plot. Like, this is your paradise. This is your Elro House of Silk. This, I am that for you, for us. We can rival them. The biggest problem, I will tell you the honest truth, we were a threat to that scene in-house. We were a major threat. We had come up with dancing, shuffling and shape cutting and the trend was growing, but it's a numbers game and we were becoming a threat. And how they would try to eliminate that threat is use the hood house, the sugar-coated type of polite, form of racism that's what but we were a fucking threat to them and that's what it came down to and i'm telling everyone forget the bollocks we're a threat to them we are a threat to this eats everything and all this type of deep we're a threat to them no no we're not we are we're a threat i've been in this game for years i started off raving year in the 80s i know the game i know the underground you lot don't mm. You lot just come now, or you come in the last five years, you don't know fuck all. I've seen it all. My experience will carry me. It's wow, it's wow rise to the top because I'm experienced. I know how the cogs turn. Mm -hmm. And um, exactly that happened. I, I, be, I became like, for me, they come running back to me, all these DJs. So I just, you know, and I was picking and choosing if I wanted you or not. So where where did it get to then pre sort of pre lockdown and everything where where was House of Silk Oh, I was just number one. Just just the this the event in right. Uh, it's an experience. It's not a rave. It's an experience. My crowd come from all over the country, mm -hmm. all over the country, and every event I'm doing sixty to a hundred tickets from abroad, whether it's uh, France, Italy, New York, India, Brazil. Um, RA shows us all where they're coming from. Yeah. Um, and the warehouse I was doing, I don't know if you ever know it, Great Suffolk Street Warehouse. Yeah, of course, mate. Is, is, is it like free big Serious venue yeah. to, to pack. Yeah, man. A lot of people can't pack that venue. And I'm consistently packing it out. You had a bold showing us, who, oh, if you play at House of Silk, you can't play for me. Abode. He was just fucking outright racist, though. He's a boy from village in Kent. He wasn't actually out. He still is a racist. He's a fucking idiot, this guy. Um, and I, I never thought there's, there's no need for that at the end day. I mean, who are you? Where have you come from? What do you know about house? Where was you in the 90s when house was? Where was you late 80s when house? What the fuck do you know about house music? What the fuck do you know? So when you're coming with this nonsense, you know, name me five DJs from 1989 that brought that were playing house in this country. You couldn't even fucking do it. Don't tell me about your house and music and he comes from garage and I don't want to hear your bollocks. But they would stop a lot of our ravers trying to get into their events, the door pickers. They're known race racial problems there. Uh, telling DJs, if you play for House Silk, you never play for me. Wow. But I used to just put it in one ear, take it out the other. I didn't want to get involved or distracted by anything. Yeah, For me, yeah. it was just, oh, just laugh it off. You know, a fucking idiot. Do you know what I mean? And they never would really want to have a battle. Wasn't interested in that. 
because I knew what I'm doing. I'm winning, and I'm a threat. I am a threat, and I'm winning. So you can say what you want at the end of the day, and any of you DJ want to fall in the trap, uh, you you fall in what you want. You see you later, because I'll, I'll still carry on. So how often were you doing events? Uh, four times a year. And did you, before the COVID stuff kicked off, did you have any plans to change that or potentially? No, well, so four times a year I'm in certain festivals. Wasn't in the big house festivals, but I'm in festivals. Should be Should have been. I was in Garage Nation festivals, in yep. One Dance, Sunborn. Should have been in Parklife, We Are Festival. Right. Really, that's where you, yeah, you, yeah, you know, yeah. you'd want someone like me, but, you know, colour wasn't right, I suppose, in the day. But I must stress, I'm not one... I'm not a guy to ever draw that card. Some, you know, I'm bigger than that. I've always felt like, oh, draw the race card. No, I was never that guy. But there's, there's, there's clearly something that's an obstacle to your access to having a stage at a festival, having booking agents be open to allowing you access to their artists, and we can't avoid the elephant in the room, which is clearly because of... Yeah. It's, it's that. It's that. It's exactly uh, listen, what you're I had... Uh, so, Jamie, NG Booking, uh, Jamie Johns' agency, I had it with this guy. Everyone I was going for, he said, no, 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 no. So, I remember I went for Mark Jenkins once, uh, and I actually Facebooked Mark. I said, look, coming for you for a few times. This your agent is talking rubbish. I was telling him the problem. He goes, what? I'd love to play at your event. And we don't, we don't even get the information, he said. So he phoned his agent, said, no, I'm playing now. And so his agent was struggling to deal with me. Now, oh, God, I've got to deal with him, blah, blah. But the guy came in and he said to me, he says, I can't believe, what an event you got. Hood. you got the most diverse crowd I've ever seen. And we wasn't hood. That's the worst thing about it. Yeah, I had some hood. I had everything. Yeah. I had everything. I had solicitors. Mm-hmm. I had... Police off duty, raving on drugs that we recognise from Tottenham Police Station, <laughs> saying, "Please leave us alone." I had all walks of life in the event, and this is where it is, and this is where it starts. This is where it starts for you, and it's, I'm, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna mention it again. But Dungeons, Sunrise, Biology, all of these places, yeah, that, that's what it was like. Yeah. So, I'm. I always think to myself. Why is that an obstacle now in today's world where we should be even more open-minded than we were back then? I think uh, the dance music has been, the house music industry has become a predominantly white-orientated industry now. Where if you go back to the late 80s, it wasn't just white DJs at all. It was hardly, really a few white DJs, like Paul Oakenfold was one. It was mixed, you know, black and white. It was, I, don't know, I, don't, I don't know what this fucking this problem was. I just... Do you think as it's, maybe as it's become less DIY and more business that people who come from potentially more um, yes. middle-class backgrounds yes. have... have yes, LWE, biggest cunts out there. Uh, London Warehouse, I don't know if you've heard of them. Shut me down, try to get into tobacco docks. Someone introduced me. Just shut me down there and there. Really? Shut me down, Paul Jack. Shut me down. How did that happen? How did that play out? Will Patterson used to be part of LWE. Will Patterson helped me along the way. In, um, that type of a guy, if you saw him, looked like a school teacher to you. Got me into places, got me into hidden, recommended me. Such a good guy, Will was, you know. He said, look, I'll put you in touch on the email intro, LWE, try and get you into tobacco docks. 
uh, done the intro, told them, ramming out, great stuff for street. Everyone knows what I'm doing. When you're in that league with those numbers, you know what people are doing. Don't ever get it twisted. Shut me down. No. Pissed off for the day or two, but then get past it, move on. Mm. Mm. Just think, you come from that middle-class white type of thing and you're showing us you you ain't got a fucking clue about music or house music or... But you'd think in that kind of situation, give, given the numbers that you're bringing in, given that how successful and how many tickets you're selling, etc., etc., that, first of all, there'd be at least a slight opening where they'll go, okay, and, uh, and, and just understand that, you know... It's not you're not going to bring a crowd that's going to bring trouble. No, like, we don't it, because our, let me tell you something. Our crowds go to all these festivals, whether we're there or not. Yeah. They're all in them. Yeah. And let me tell you something. There's more problems than I've ever ever had. I've had one or two little problems over six years, uh, eight years, minor. Yeah, I've seen and what you've seen in some of these events, the white events. And I said, they got the cheek to fucking turn around and say that there's problems around everything. What's going on here? Mm. You got acid attacks. You got fucking stabbings. You got the taking down the fences at We Are Festival. It's just this secret Sundays that stab, stabbing. This is society. It happens. These things will happen in society in general nowadays, not just. So don't sit here and try and blame this or that or shuffling dancing or you know this was all just you know we were talented the, the people who were dancing were shuffling good dancers yeah man so he was yeah yeah the bloody good duck you know you was a good wow look at that it looks great makes a change from two-stepping yeah <laughs> so um never really got to me certain venues I couldn't get in thing, but I was still doing my thing I think if it was a case of I couldn't do this I couldn't do that they might have got to me a bit but um, my crowd was definitely the most diverse I had the most raving crowd yeah yeah and that that for me is what it's all about because yeah. I come I come from drum and bass jungle yeah and I was saying to Mark Radford last week like the energy the energy of, yeah. of, of your raves yeah is is equivalent to the energy of those yeah. jungle raves because it's such a diverse crowd. And it's not like that in no in the in, the, in these other raves. No, yeah. no, exactly. Like I was I was saying to Mark, I'll be in a I'll be in a you know any standards house rave back in like 2013, 12, 13, 14, whatever, whenever, making noise and people looking at me like I'm weird. Yeah. I'm just making noise because I'm enjoying myself, man. This is what you do in a party. You know, people but are like... I brought the horns so to my events. <laughs> yes. So I'd buy 300 <laughs> horns every event, throw the horns out there. It was a... Re a re and that's what made me, people want to be at my event. It was an escape. Mm -hmm. It was an experience. And it was such a rave. Mm. You wasn't getting this in other events. Mm. That's what made us. Yeah, man. Yeah. It's amazing because your your lineage is like directly connected right back to the roots of rave in this country. And you're, and you're still you're still like bringing that energy to the parties and like, and, and it's, and it's amazing, man. And it's what's, it's what's made you a success in, in everything that you've touched since, since you came out of jail and had the, had pure silk, you know? Yeah. And it's, um and it's amazing. And it's, it's a credit to you for, for being so determined to, yeah. to, to push forwards, regardless of what was if going on. If I wasn't outside. here, the London house scene would have been dead. Yeah. And it would have been killed off by the people who were uh, part of it. And I get on with Radford but he would have been part of the reason why it died and other people like him 
would have been how did you allow yourself to fall in the trap and oh we won't get work and um mark radford's one of them mark radford is one of them and he's one of the key players that started this with b3 edwards at sunday night that pioneered this what we're doing now they pioneered it mm. yet you let people get into your head sad I'm really sad. And Mark, you come, you've been around uh, as a raver from early 90s and you you fell in the trap. Shocking, shocking. But it helped me as a DJ because mm. I've become one of the most popular ones as well. Yeah, man. So, <laughs> so my platform, my crowd, DJS, they loved him. And so um, in an ideal world, say, suppose... Covid's not not going on. What's what's what are your next steps? Where does it all go? Strong enough to walk straight back in. Uh, let's hope. Let's see the damage Covid does to venues, um, companies restructuring. Who survives? Who doesn't? That's a whole new topic. Another topic in day. But um, I hope um, we do come back. Uh, but like I said, I'm strong enough to walk straight back in. Uh, that's how strong of a brand I am. I don't have no problems like that. But I want to see who survives and who doesn't, you know, at the end of the day. And uh, I hope the venues survive. Uh, RE have restructured. A lot of companies have restructuring. So, uh, look, when it finishes, people are dying for a, uh, a new rave. They're dying for it. Right, Absolutely dying to be back, socialising, losing themselves. They can't wait for it. Um, but... Uh, I was in Iron Upper every week. I've got a deal in Iron Upper, our silk. I was in my B for three times this year in Eden. Uh, so I was getting some, getting, you know, people were looking at me. I had that going on. Um, was that for meetings, Birmingham. Huh? Was that for me? No, Rafe. Uh, oh, right, okay. silk. I had house silk going on every week last two years in Iron Upper. Right, right. Summer okay, season, cool. franchised it. I B for done two last year, going to do three this year. Uh, I was doing house silk in Birmingham, selling it out. Brilliant. Brilliant. In Birmingham, selling it out. I bet there's a great market for us. Yeah, there, they yeah. loved it up there. Um, was worked with the O2 together, the, from London. The O2 group was going to do um, a few tour dates with them around the country. Uh, was going to do a Brixton Academy. Um, so much planned. Um, was brought to a standstill, but uh, is where it is right yeah. now. Um, hope it comes back. Think it will come back. Um, with whatever you got to do, mm -hmm. get injected or some passport they're saying. Let's see what happens. But um, I think the nation wants to party now. Oh, of course they do. So <laughs> let's hope for 2021. Let's, we can only hope uh, that we see something towards yeah. the summer, hopefully. And hope. uh, just, just to finish up, um, I was never there in the peak of the garage days. And it's one of the things that I think about quite a lot because I didn't even go to Ayanapa or anything like no, that. Right. I was, it was just a little bit before my time. Can you, um, can you sort of like describe what it was like in those, in those garage raves at, at, at their peak, you know, like how the people were dancing, what everybody looked like, you know, because we have these like impressions that are given to us by like magazine articles. Yeah. But, you know, you were there in the thick yeah. of it, man. Well, it was that Moschino. Uh, Patrick Cox shoes had to be very smart uh, was a big culture shock for me from where I came from mm. dungeons sunrise all this but it's just, it goes through different eras and different periods uh, you might have seen it if he was in jungle 
Was he in Jungle? Yeah, yeah. Did yeah. you ever go to the 94 raves, 95 Jungle no, raves? No, well, they had the same thing. They were yeah, also sorry. having the designer shoes. Mm. Um, was, was, was creeping into Jungle at the end, I think. Uh, um, champagne Moe was huge. Had to have a... And funny enough, it made me laugh because it wasn't, wasn't going to have a bottle of Moe. It could have a crate of Moe. <laughs> the sort of money that was being spent at the bar, it was very flash-posing. Mm-hmm. Um, probably a little bit of a, um, f- a American culture franchised a little bit sure. over here. That yeah, yeah. hip hop, Biggie Small, mm-hmm. to, because that's what they were listening to in the cars yeah, outside, yeah, 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 and yeah. pulling up to a garage rave. So that 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 influenced it, you know. That um, jewelry, wads of cash, looking good. Um, yeah, I haven't seen nothing like it before. Uh, I've never seen a, a, a genre where in dance music where. You have to go and wear shoes. Yeah, people got proper dressed up, but yeah. then they like properly went for it in the raves. Properly went for it, <laughs> yeah. And these were ten to six raves. Yeah, so it wasn't you know in days. Uh, so you come out there, and you might as well have not dressed up. Well, they had after parties as well. <laughs> yeah, but it was you had to dress up. But you I mean, you like you'd be like sweaty and dishevelled by the end of the night, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's twenty. Five years ago now, 24 years ago. Mad, mad. Well, DJS, it's been a pleasure chatting with you, yeah. man. And it's like really nice to have got some insight from somebody who's been at the heart of like so many things that have been going on in London. Yeah. And someone who, you know, it's quite rare to find someone who's like been so like strongly involved in London for so many years and has such a broad knowledge of everything that's going on here. Yeah, I and mean, that's been like you compared know, to some of the people that are coming out in the last five, ten years and make out they know, oh, this is out. I've been there from day one. Yeah, man. I've been there from day one. I know how warehouse parties work, you know. Don't tell me that, oh, I'm not credible enough. I've been there from day one. Yeah, man. <laughs> and that's why you're still here, man. Yeah. Thanks very yeah. much. Thank Appreciate you. it. Brilliant.